Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. We're going to read part of the same passage that we looked at this morning, uh, beginning again with verse 17, but we won't read all the way down to verse 39. We will read from verse 17 to verse 30. We're still in the uh, series, The Best Life, looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of Luke, and the title of the message tonight is Healthy Skepticism. One day Jesus was teaching. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. I don't know how he did it. You're not supposed to heal anybody on the Sabbath day, but Jesus went against that current and he healed a man on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to forgive sins being a mere man, But Jesus was no mere man, contrary to what they thought, and so he forgave sins that they thought he was not supposed to be able to do. He went against the current in that way as well. When Jesus left there, he saw a man named Levi, a tax collector. He was a traitor. Sorry, rascal. Nobody in their right mind would like him. You and I wouldn't like him either. He'd be one of the folks we'd talk about constantly. And we'd be justified in doing so in terms of there's not much that we could have said about him that wouldn't have been true. And yet Jesus went straight to him and asked him to follow him. Now keep in mind, there were Pharisees and religious leaders who had come from all over what is now Israel to Galilee to see and hear Jesus. They had come a long way. They weren't fans of his. They were coming to catch him 
in the wrong. They were bounty hunters. It was almost like they had a religious contract on Jesus. They knew, because they'd heard, that he would go against the current of what they thought was the right thing to do. And sure enough, he did. And they expected to catch him. And sure enough, they did. And so they were really, really in a big way when they saw that instead of Jesus choosing them, which down deep they probably would have loved to have him choose them because they were the religious elite, Jesus chose a, a tax collector. Probably were even more surprised when that man didn't even argue with Jesus about it. He wasn't like Moses who offered a whole array of excuses for not doing what God was calling him to do. Luke says he just up, left everything, followed Jesus. Even threw a party for him, which again was against the current. Not him throwing a party, Levi that is, but Jesus going to one. He claimed to be a minister of the gospel So going to a party was certainly not something that was expected of a minister of faith. And so they criticized him for that. Sometime after that, the Pharisees got to thinking about fasting. They were probably thinking about things that Jesus ought to be doing that he's not doing. They'd already found him doing some things that he should not be doing, but now they wanted to find him not doing some things that he should have been doing. I don't know how many things they must have thought about before they landed on the subject of fasting. Fasting, doing without food for a period of time in order to dedicate yourself to prayer. It's a good thing to do at times. But Jesus didn't do it as often as the Pharisees liked. Not only did he not do it as often as they would have liked, but his disciples didn't do it as often as they would have liked. And so they came up to him. They said, you know, we and our followers fast and pray all the time. Why don't you do that? I guess they could have accused him of not being a praying man. But those of us who look back would know that that wouldn't be true. And then they decided to add a little oomph into it. Our followers and the Pharisees and religious leaders that we're affiliated with, we fast and pray. In fact, your friend John the baptizer, you know the guy who baptized you? He and his followers fast and pray. So why don't you? Once again, Jesus went against the current. That was the focus of this morning's message, wasn't it? We observed that, that Jesus went against the grain. He went against the current. He swam upstream, the stream of prevailing thoughts and attitudes. He often went against the way things were usually done. But the fact that Jesus often went against the current did not mean that Jesus always went against the current. He was not a troublemaker like that. Jesus was one who carefully studied every situation that confronted him in order to determine whether to go with the current or to stand against the current. And so I like to say that Jesus approached prevailing trends and opinions with a dose of what I call healthy skepticism. Skepticism is a bad word in Christian circles. Skeptic is a bad word. Or it's gotten a bad reputation, I think, because people immediately think if you're a skeptic, you don't believe anything. 
I often tell people, I hope you don't mind me telling people, I'll just tell you, I tell people that I'm a believing skeptic. I believe, and yet, as a skeptic, I'm a question asker. I will ask questions. My Sunday school teacher is John Hughes. I was pretty quiet in there today. But sometimes we'll be in the class, and I'll ask him something. Probably sometimes I shouldn't be asking questions, but I'll ask questions. He'll tell you that I do. Dennis Brightman used to be my teacher. I asked so many questions that he turned it over to John Hughes. But John's a question asker too. I'll tell you that. He'll ask questions. I'm a believing skeptic. Jesus approached the current and prevailing opinions of his day and the current practices of his day with a healthy skepticism. And so I do not stand in the dugout with those who tell us that it is always wrong and always hurtful to question things. Now, it can be annoying. It can be troubling. It can take you to some dark, dark places. Yes, questions will. But I find that you learn, and I find that I learn by asking questions. And what I really like to do is try to dig up, with the help of a lot of other people, because I can't do it on my own, dig up the questions that nobody else is is, uh, courageous enough to ask. Jesus approached everything with a healthy dose of skepticism. That's why he gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees such a hard time. He refused to just accept what they said as the truth. They wanted him, they, what they wanted to say was, here, here's what the truth is, now you just accept it and don't question it. And Jesus said, well, I can't do that. I hope you don't do that. I've said before, and you already know this, in the book of Acts, the greatest compliment that was ever given to any church was to the church at Berea. You remember it? Paul went there for a very short number of weeks. He preached the gospel there. And he left, and and Luke, the writer of Acts, says, and the Bereans went back and searched the Scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. What did that mean? It meant that those Berean Christians, though, though they were young in the faith, they were still smart enough, intellectual enough, that they even approached the Apostle Paul in what he said with a healthy dose of skepticism. There's nothing wrong with that, ladies and gentlemen. Because if you and I refuse to approach what we are told by whoever, if we refuse to approach that with a healthy dose of skepticism, what we become is puppets who will believe anything. That's why Mark Knoll wrote a book in the 90s called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And in his opening chapter, he said, the scandal of the evangelical mind, and evangelical, by the way, is you and me. He said, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical mind. What did he mean? He meant that we don't like asking questions. And we don't like those long-held, hard-held Opinions of ours to be questioned. And so it's no wonder why people often look at us as unintelligent. I want to share with you three types of skepticism. These did not originate with me. I did some reading. Among the people that helped me with this was Pierre Lemorvan, who is a uh, 
a professor of religion at the University of New Jersey. He writes many Christian articles, and he wrote a, uh, an article entitled Healthy Skepticism and Practical Wisdom. And in that article, he highlights these three types of skepticism. Now, two of these are unhealthy types of skepticism, and the third and final one is healthy skepticism. First of all, I want you to notice that there's such a thing as unhealthy, overreactive, and extremist skepticism. Here's what he says about it. He says, unhealthy, excessive, extremist skepticism is overreactive, and it serves as an impediment to the truth and obstructs further inquiry into the truth. It is that skepticism, that unhealthy skepticism, that a person practices, believes and practices, when that person is willing to believe any narrow-minded mindset that is fed to them, and they're so bumfuzzled by it, so consumed by it, obsessed by it, that they don't ever ask any questions. And he mentions two examples. There are many examples we could use, but he mentions two, and so I'll use his. One is a Holocaust denier. It's no secret to real historians that in the 1930s and the 1940s, under Adolf Hitler, there were about 12 million people that were carried off to concentration camps in various places, most of them gassed. 12 million people died. Of that 12 million, 6 million were Jewish people who died only because they were Jewish. And yet there are people today, among them the Iranian president, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is a Holocaust denier, despite overwhelming evidence that the Holocaust occurred, the Holocaust denier skeptically denies that that one knows or can justifiably believe that the Holocaust did happen and attempts by way of numerous publications and presentations to spread this skepticism to others is allowed. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that somebody could be elected the president of a country such as that who believes what he believes. A Holocaust denier. That's an overreactive, unhealthy skepticism, further denying inquiry into the truth. Lamorvin also says that there is, along with the Another example of an unhealthy, overreactive skepticism is what he calls a parti pris. That's a French term for preconceived notion, partisan. And here's what he says about it. He says, he says fanatically devoted to her political party, the parti pris partisan only listens to and reads the views of her own party and related media outlets and skeptically denies the truth or justification of any alternative view that could call her own view into question. What these cases of excessive skepticism have in common is that in each one of them, a skeptical attitude becomes intertwined with an agenda, whether conscious or unconscious, that an agenda that is hostile to the genuine pursuit of the truth. Because you see, the truth doesn't matter. 
Second, there is an underreactive skepticism that is also unhealthy. An underreactive skepticism. Underreactive skepticism also impedes the truth and it leads to gullibility. This happened to me. A few weeks ago, most of you know that uh, my email address is an AOL address. I have uh, three or four e- uh, a- uh, email addresses, one of them with Bruton Parker, and I have uh, one with Gmail that I never use. You just have to have a Gmail account in order to have some of the apps that you have. And so I have that Gmail account but never use it. And then I have two AOL accounts. The AOL account I usually use, DRJFO at AOL, I've had for almost 20 years. AOL has been good to me. AOL is one of the few internet providers that I can take and I can send one bulk email to all of you. I tried to do that with Google and I tried to do that with BellSouth.net and they made me break up the whole list into numbers of about 40. Aggravated the life out of me. Took me a whole lot longer too. So I'd rather do it with AOL. But about a few weeks ago, I guess maybe six or seven weeks ago it was, I received uh, an email from AOL, or at least I thought it was from AOL. They had all the emblems, all the logos, everything right. They said, we're doing some renovations on the website, and pardon the inconvenience, you can, you can go and see what some of these uh, renovations are to our general website by clicking on this hyperlink. And gullible me, I clicked on the hyperlink. It took me to a page that was a, a sign-in page. It looked just like my normal sign-in page for AOL, and I put in my, my email address, and I put in my password, and I sent it on, and it took me back to the website. And then all of a sudden, I start getting, about three hours later, I start getting these emails from people I know. One of them was a guy I know with the Bank of the West that we used to talk with about three years ago when we were thinking about financing for the relocation. Guy sent me an email, and He said, I'm really sorry to hear that you're having to attend the funeral of a close friend, but uh, Pastor Orr, you don't have any accounts with our bank for which you need the balances. And I'm thinking, what? Then I got another email from Lucy McDuffie, who is the uh, commercial financial officer for United Community Bank. She says, you need to call me right away. I'm thinking, what in the world? I call her up, and while I'm calling her, I receive a uh, voicemail message from Linda Lindsay, who, along with Peggy, works in our deaf ministry program. On the voicemail message, she says, I got got your email from me to call you back. You just said to call you. What in the world has happened? I never get an email from you like that. And I'm thinking, I never sent Linda an email. I got an email from one of my students at Bruton Parker. He said, I got an email that said you, you needed for me to talk with you right away, and I'm calling you. I said, I didn't call you. So I called Lucy McDuffie, and then I realized I'd been hacked. At first, I didn't realize, I didn't understand how in the world I'd gotten hacked, but as I got to thinking more about it, I began to realize I had been gullible. I'd been scammed. And so I called AOL and they said, when we send you an email, number one, we will never, 
ever ask for your password. We will never send you through a hyperlink to a place where you have to put in your password. And the guy said, we always send a special encrypted, encrypted banner with our emails to our customers. So I went back because I'm an email saver. You ever send me something? It's going to be there. So I went back in my box, and there was that email, and it didn't have that encrypted banner on it. And I thought, been scammed. So I asked the guy, I said, what do I need to do? This was the real guy at AOL. He said, well, first thing you need to do, he said, you need to go change all your passwords, which I did, which really solved the problem. I haven't had the problem since. And he said, I'd recommend that you go ahead and open up another AOL email address, which I did. And some of you have received email from that. In fact, I've had some folks come up and say, I received a strange email from you the other day. I said, really, what was it? He said, it came from Dr. Jimmy O at AOL.com. I said, yeah, that's me. They said, well, that wasn't the one you used to have. I said, no. I've got another one. Scammed. Said it didn't ask enough questions. That's underreactive. That's naive skepticism. It's also kind of like he says the evidence blind father, despite all the evidence around him that his daughter is a serious drug addict, a father continues to accept his daughter's claims that everything is just fine, and he turns a blind eye to ample countervailing evidence that she is in deep emotional and physical trouble. What these cases of deficient, naive, underreactive skepticism have in common is that whatever the cause, whether it's self-deception or naivet or inexperience or whatever, in each case, the person in question evinces a deficiency of skepticism that is amount to gullibility. And then finally, there is healthy skepticism. This is what Jesus practiced. This is what... His lifestyle recommends that we practice. It serves as a spur, not an impediment to further inquiry or investigation into the truth of the matter and into the evidence for or against a claim. It's kind of like the careful car buyer. While listening to the claims of the used car salesman about the virtue of the various cars on the dealer's lot, the careful car buyer takes them with a grain of salt and seeks out independent evaluations of the car that he or she is buying. Or the determined investigative reporter, given its history of, of uh, mendacity, the, ter- the determined reporter doubts the veracity of the government's claim of some certain assurance that no war crimes took place in a conflict, and, it, and she investigates reports of massacres and attempted cover-ups. You just don't accept what people say without questioning it not being arrogant i'm not talking about being obnoxious now some people are unable to question while, without being obnoxious i'm not talking about that i don't believe jesus ever had an obnoxious bone in his body but he questioned almost everything Not because he wanted to be different. Not because he wanted to be difficult. Not because he wanted to be demonic. Not because he wanted to be trouble. But because he wanted to propagate the truth. Jesus often went against the grain of prevailing opinion. But he only did this after careful evaluation of every situation in which he found himself. He never exercised an unhealthy skepticism 
Rather, he always exercised a healthy skepticism that was cautious but not overreactive, nor was it underreactive or naive. The best life, should you want to live it, practices that same Jesus kind of healthy skepticism. Do you practice healthy skepticism? I got a call from one of our senior adults about a month ago. She was upset with me. She had sent me an email, a political email, and I didn't respond to it. I really didn't realize I was supposed to respond to it. And she got after me about it, and so I responded to her about it sometime later. And I told her, I said, the one that you sent me wasn't true. And I gave her the reference to several different places where she could find out the truth. And she sent back to me an email. She said, I found it on Google. Doesn't that mean it's true? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, help us to be of a healthy skepticism. Not everything we hear is true. We want to know the truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are truth. Your word is truth. But so much that we hear out in the world is not true. Not everything we see and read on Google or Bing or Yahoo is true. Not everything that we hear from fellow church members is true. Lord, help us to humbly question things that we've heard and make sure that the things we hear are true before we jump on their bandwagon. Help us to follow you in that practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.